Hello, morning. Uh, the best way to follow today's um, sermon is to keep your Bibles open before you, and I'll be preaching from Mark chapter 2, verse 18, all the way to uh, 335, uh, the passages that were read for us. Yeah? Um, and as to whether there's a correlation between the short Bible readings and the length of my sermon, I'll leave that for you to discover for yourself. Religion is popular, isn't it? Well, at least for us here in our nation, Singapore, religion is popular or is still popular. We recognize that religion is a prominent feature of life among our citizens. That's why we say in our pledge, we, the citizens of Singapore, pledge ourselves as one united people, regardless of race, language, or religion. You see, I don't know why it's an automatic reflex. The minute I say the pledge, my arm just comes up like that. Ne? Yeah. And even though the Singapore Census of Population 2020 on religion shows the percentage of those who subscribe to one form of religion or another to have fallen from 83% to 80% compared to 2010, so there's a drop of three percentage points, uh, but the title of the study still aptly states, over the last 10 years, Singapore continued to be religiously diverse. As we have been reminded, even as secularism or secularity as a political idea is on the rise, we have been reminded we may be a secular state, but we are a religiously diverse society. And here in Singapore, the six officially recognized religions, what are they? Buddhism, Taoism, which includes traditional Chinese beliefs, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and all the other uh, 3,995 religions are lumped under the last one, which is called other religions, okay? So these are the six major religions, officially recognized religions here in Singapore. And together, they testify to us indeed being a thriving, religiously diverse society. So religion is popular. There's no doubt about it. But the deeper question might be, why? is religion so popular? What is so attractive about religion and religiosity that, that draws us to it? Well, I think one undeniable aspect of religion that makes it so popular is that religion seems to put us in some form of connection with the higher being, with the divine itself. Religion, and especially religiosity, gives us a sense that when we do certain things, uh, when we think in a certain way, when we observe certain rules, carry out certain commandments, when we eat or don't eat certain things, when we say certain words, when we carry out certain rituals, when we adopt certain practices, when we are seen at certain places. Religion gives us a sense that when we do these things, we are in connection with the divine being, with God himself. We stand favorably before God, we are in God's good books. And we like that feeling, don't we? Conversely, religion also leads one to think that for those who do not conform to the particular patterns of religiosity, they are in the outer circle. They are not standing favorably before God. They are not in God's good books. So religion seems to provide a way for us to know whether we are accepted by God and whether we stand favorably before God. It seems to give us some degree of control or assurance. And we like that control. We like 
that assurance, isn't it? That's why religion is so popular and here to stay. In today's passage, we see Jesus confronting the popular religion of his day. Jesus, in dealing with two religious practices of the Judaism of his day, shows us the potential danger of religion and religiosity. And that is that you and I might be so fixated on our religiosity and our religious practices that we miss the Savior himself. The first religious practice is that of fasting. Verse 18, some people come to ask Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, in order to fully understand that question, we need to understand the place of fasting in the lives of the Jews. With many of us today, we tend to associate fasting as an activity done by the super spiritual type, huh? done by the super religious type. Yeah? But that wasn't so for the average Jew in Jesus' day. Instead, fasting was quite a common religious experience. It was something experienced by every Jew. Well, at least on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. This was something commanded in the Old Testament scriptures in Leviticus 16. On that day every year, the high priest who made atonement for their sins through the animal sacrificial system. And the Jews would have to fast on that day as they mourn for their sins, as they repent of their sins in preparation for the atonement that was about to take place. Of course, as we move through the Old Testament, we find the Jews fasting on more and more occasions and for more and more reasons. Reasons such as mourning when national disaster struck or on special occasions of prayer. And by the time it came to the Jews of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, for example, they were fasting something like twice a week, all in the hopes of bringing about a quicker restoration of the kingdom of God. It is against this background that we understand the question that was posed to Jesus. <clears throat> Why is it that your disciples are not fasting? Don't you, as a rabbi, teach them to do that? If you are truly religious, wouldn't you teach your disciples the same way the Pharisees and John the Baptist teach their disciples to fast? Don't you know, Jesus, that is the proper religious thing to do? Right. Yep. See how Jesus answers them. He didn't answer them with the song, but... See how he answers them? And it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus could have told them that it was not outward public fasting that matters. He could have told them it was true fasting done in secret that matters. As he did on another occasion. Remember Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6? That's what Jesus said. Or he could have told them that the Old Testament law actually called for fasting only on one day of the year. Or Jesus could simply have told the Pharisees, these are my disciples and it's none of your business. But he didn't say any of these things. Instead, he gives by means of an answer, an analogy, an illustration. Verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come where the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Fascinating answer, isn't it? I mean, on one level, Jesus' answer is very easy to understand. You see, you would probably be very offended if it was your wedding day and your guests came and attended your wedding dinner. Okay, let's say the five guests that is allowed at the table, okay? And all of them do not touch the food. 
right? Dish after dish, they don't touch the food. And then they look at you and they say, sorry, bro, I know it's your wedding dinner, but we're fasting. You'll probably scream out with every fiber of your being, isn't it? Well, why don't you take your fasting elsewhere on another occasion? It's my wedding. It's a joyous occasion for goodness sake. See, the lesson is clear. Wedding dinners are not the right time and place to fast. In fact, it's inappropriate and it's insulting to fast at wedding dinners. And that's the point that Jesus was getting at. Fasting in Jesus' presence was totally inappropriate. But why? Why is fasting in Jesus' presence inappropriate? And here is where Jesus' answer presents itself at a much deeper level. You see, one way that God often described himself in the Old Testament scriptures was that he was the bridegroom of Israel. He was the husband of Israel. Israel's relationship with God was often described as a marriage, and Israel was God's bride. And not only that, the Old Testament also pointed to the time where a new age would come, where God's age of salvation would come. And just like marriage, that will be the time where God, the bridegroom, comes for his bride. God himself will return to his people, forgive their sins, and restore them. And when God's age of salvation comes, when this wedding comes, it is inappropriate to fast. Instead, the appropriate thing would be to rejoice, to feast even. So, for example, the book of Zechariah tells us that when the day of salvation comes, Zechariah 8, 19, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love truth and peace. So through a question of fasting, Jesus very cleverly turns it around and uses it to reveal something about himself. He's the bridegroom of Israel. He's the one who brings in God's age of salvation, where God will forgive the people of their sins. And in view of him bringing in God's age of salvation, fasting is inappropriate in his presence. As long as he's there with them, it's a time of celebration, not fasting. Instead, the appropriate time that they will fast is when the bridegroom is taken away. Uh, the, the Greek word uh, uh, connotes the idea of forcibly snatched away from them. Now, that's the first reference in Mark's gospel to Jesus' death. On that day, Jesus says, there will be true fasting, as sin is truly atoned for. Jesus follows up in verses 21 to 22 to talk more about this age of God's salvation by mentioning two analogies. And in both analogies, the lesson is clear, isn't it? Right? Uh, it's disastrous when you force the old to mix with the new. Okay, I think for us modern people, it's a bit harder to understand because, you know, nowadays you walk into a shop and you want to buy a pair of jeans and then they tell you, sir, ma'am, would you like a pair of pre-shrunk jeans? And you go, what's that? Oh, that means the jeans have been washed and uh, it's really shrunk already, so it won't, it won't, it won't affect much here. Huh? Uh, but back in Jesus' time, there was no such thing as pre-shrunk jeans <laughs> or pre-shrunk material. So if you take a new patch of cloth and you try to patch up an old tear, what do you think will happen? The new cloth will shrink and then it will make the tear worse. Can you see? Right? Or what about wine? 
Today, most of the time, we keep our wines in nice bottles and we put it in the cellar. In fact, I know quite a few of us have two refrigerators in our home. Huh? One is to contain all the groceries and everything, and the other one is especially for our wine collection, right? But in those days, they put the wine in wine skins. Uh, and and, and it's, it's known you can't put new wine into old wine skins. Why? The new wine will ferment, gas will be released, pressure will be built up, and then the old wine skins are unable to stretch anymore. The result is they burst, and you lose both the wine and the wine skin. So in the same way, Jesus is saying that something new is happening in Israel. This new work is none other than God's age of salvation that Jesus brings in. This is the new work that the Old Testament has always been looking forward to and is now fulfilled in Jesus' day and time. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And God's age of salvation, fulfilling what was promised in the Old Testament, means that you cannot forcefully fit in the old expectations. You cannot forcefully fit in the old religious practices anymore. It just won't work. They won't go together. There will be a clash. That's the point Jesus makes here. He is the one who has brought in God's age of salvation. And to forcefully get Jesus to stick to the old religious practices as the Jews understood them then would be to miss the entire point. It would be trying to force fit the new Jesus to conform with the religious practices and expectations of the old and in that way be totally blind to the new work and the new age of salvation that Jesus has brought in. Ultimately, it would be to show that they don't know who Jesus is. With that in mind, we move on to the next two sections from verse 23 all the way to 3.6, where the same idea of Jesus confronting religiosity comes out. We see two encounters Jesus has with the Pharisees, both regarding the Sabbath, and specifically what can be done on the Sabbath. And in both encounters, we see the sad truth again that because Jesus is not seen to be conforming to the religious patterns of his day, he is dismissed by the Pharisees. So in the first section, we see Jesus' disciples plucking grain as they were going through the grain fields. Huh? Maybe they were just a bit playful as they walked through. They were just, you know, some of us, uh, yeah, especially parents, you know, we, go, we understand what it means. Because you know? I have kids who can't seem to seem to keep their hands to themselves. Everywhere they go, they like to touch things and things like that. So maybe the disciples were a bit like this, you know, as they walked through the, the grain fields, they also wanted to pluck some grains. Eh? And then the Pharisees go, aha, uh -huh, your disciples are doing something which is not lawful on the Sabbath. They were accusing the disciples and Jesus indirectly for reaping or harvesting on the Sabbath. And in that sense, breaking the Sabbath law. Which, for example, in Exodus 34, 21, it is said, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You see what's happening here? The Pharisees are interpreting the plucking of a few grains as harvesting activity that was done on the Sabbath. Wow! What a strict and legalistic interpretation, isn't it? Huh? But once again, notice how Jesus answered them. He could have as any lawyer in our midst would do, and here I'm looking at one of them. Yep. 
He could have fought against their over-legalistic interpretation, right? He could have said, come on guys, cut me some slack. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. These guys are not harvesting. What kind of interpretation do you have? But Jesus didn't. Instead, he turns around and relates to an incident in the Old Testament. The incident is recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21. In that chapter, out of desperation and hunger, while he was running away from King Saul, King David ate some of the consecrated bread in the temple. It's not meant for him to eat, okay? It's only meant for the priest to eat. But yet, Jesus' point is that Scripture never condemned King David for his action. It's as if Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, have you guys not read that incident in, in your scriptures? If scripture did not condemn David for his actions, why is it you are condemning my disciples? And then he goes on to say, the Sabbath was made for men, not man for the Sabbath. Now in saying this, Jesus reaffirms what has always been the main principle of the Old Testament Sabbath law. It was never given by God to be a burden. It was given to be a blessing. It was meant to serve us, not to make slaves out of us. In Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, whenever the Sabbath or Sabbath law is mentioned, it was mentioned always in the context of the Sabbath being there to serve the Israelites to remind them of the most important thing, to remind them of rest and relationship with the Lord God, their Redeemer. It was there to give them a foretaste of the heavenly rest, which all of us are invited to. That's what the Sabbath is for. But look what the Pharisees had turned the Sabbath into. They had totally enslaved themselves and others to their man-made religiosity and religious practices concerning the Sabbath. Now, Jesus could have stopped there in his answer. In one sense, he had already exposed and probably embarrassed the Pharisees enough, but he didn't. He went on to say something that must have shocked the Pharisees and enraged them further. Verse 28, So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus is claiming that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what the Sabbath was there for. It is for him, the Son of Man. Meaning the Sabbath is kept for him. Meaning it's Jesus who grants the eternal rest associated with the Sabbath. What a thing to say, isn't it? No one says that. After all, the Sabbath is kept only for God. It's kept unto the Lord, Yahweh. And here, by saying he is Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is implying the Sabbath is kept for him. Who does he think he is? Does he think he's God? And the answer which Jesus is driving his listeners towards is, yes, like the wedding analogy, Jesus turns the occasion into something that points to his identity. By using the title Son of Man in reference to himself, and by linking that title more and more to things that only God can do, or linking it to identities that only God can assume, Jesus points in a veiled way to his identity. That he is God, that he carries authority equivalent to none other than God himself, Yahweh himself. 
With this statement, Mark brings us into the next section. It's the same issue on the Sabbath. The question of whether Jesus would heal on the Sabbath and in that way do work and break the Sabbath law. Or would he wait till the next day according to what the Pharisees had said should be done? I mean, surely this man's uh, deformed and withered hand could wait one more day? After all, what could be more important than keeping the Sabbath? All eyes are on Jesus as he calls the man to step forward in the public sight of all present in the synagogue. But this time round, it's Jesus who questions the Pharisees first. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? Verse 4. Now, this was a brilliant question. It's a question in which the Pharisees knew the right answer, but couldn't say that answer. Those who wanted to trap Jesus ended up being trapped instead. Right? Maybe it's like the question that Jesus asked the Pharisees is a bit like one of those questions that one day your boss suddenly pulls you aside to ask you, hey, hey, hey so, so tell me, what kind of boss am I? On one hand, it's a straightforward answer, isn't it? You are a terrible boss. You are unreasonable. You are a workaholic. You are a slave driver. You know, it's obvious. But on the other hand, you cannot, you cannot say now. Nah, These kind of answers you cannot say, right? Because if you said it, it might jeopardize your work life. Huh? Yeah, so it's a little bit like this. On the one hand, the answer to Jesus' question was simple and clear. To do good, of course. Of course, it was lawful on the Sabbath to do good and to save life. Common sense would tell us that. But on the other hand, this was an answer the Pharisees couldn't give. Because if they did, they would have stripped themselves of any basis that they might have for accusing Jesus if he heals the man. So unable to say anything, they kept silent. But their silence provokes Jesus. He was grieved by the hardness of hearts and their stubbornness. I mean, it was clear to everyone that the purpose of the Sabbath law was to do good and bring life, isn't it? I mean, even all of us here in this room, we are not schooled in the laws of, of, uh, of, of uh, uh, Judaism or we're not schooled in the laws of the rabbis back then. But we can know the answer to that question. It's so obvious. It's so clear. But the Pharisees, in their desperate attempt to upkeep their religiosity and their religious tradition and practice, they would rather not state the obvious truth. Their religiosity had sadly blinded them to the obvious and clear purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus, grieved by the Pharisees, calls out to the man and heals him. And by that one miraculous word, demonstrates the true purpose of the Sabbath. To be a blessing, to do good, and to give life. So in both instances, we see that Jesus exposes the religiosity of the Pharisees for what it is, that they would rather uphold their traditions and religious practices for their own sake than to come back to the true meaning, to come back to the true purpose of these practices in the first place. In this case, to do with the Sabbath. But there is a price to pay for exposing the fakeness of their religiosity for what it is for showing that the religiosity of the Pharisees wasn't that squeaky clean after all. Jesus must die. And that's how the section ends. Verse 6, the Pharisees get together with the Herodians. The religious party colluded with the political party to get rid of what was in their eyes, the common enemy, both religiously as well as politically. And with verse 6, the destiny of Jesus is sealed. 
as will be shown in the rest of Mark's Gospel, culminating in Mark 15 with his death on the cross. But here's the sad irony. The Pharisees' rejection of Jesus because he did not conform to their religiosity and religious traditions and practices actually led to them missing out on the Saviour. They missed out on the very one whom their own religion, Judaism, was ultimately pointing to. Here's the tragic case where their religiosity blindsided them to the Saviour. And that same question must be asked of us too. Could that be us? Could we similarly be blindsided by our own religiosity and religious practices to the reality of the Saviour? That we need a Saviour and only this Saviour and Him alone can bring us God's salvation. Because if there's any reason why religion is so popular as we have seen earlier, it's because religiosity gives us a sense that we are in connection with the divine being, with God himself, that we are in a favourable position before God. That's the secret lure of religiosity. It makes us feel that through our religiosity, our religious works, we can and we will get into God's age of salvation. Jesus, in confronting the religiosity of the Pharisees, shows us clearly it is him. It is him and him alone that has ushered in God's kingdom, God's age of salvation. And it's him and him alone by which we can enter this kingdom, this salvation. The one who has brought in God's age of salvation is also the only one who can bring us into that salvation. In 1936, American poet Arthur Guterman, he wrote the following poem and he entitled it, Our New Religion. This was in 1936, and let me read the poem to us. Okay? First, dentistry was painless. Then bicycles were chainless. And carriages were horseless. And many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless. Telegraphy was wireless, cigars were nicotineless, and coffee, caffeineless. Soon oranges were seedless, the putting green was witless, the college boy, headless, the proper diet, fatless. Now motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sortless, our new religions, godless. Delightful little poem, isn't it? But think deeper and you realise there's truth in the poem. Our new religions are godless. Our religiosity and its associated traditions and practices may seem to have so much of God in sight. It seems as if when we are religious, when we are thinking a certain way, observing certain rules, carrying out certain commands, eating or not eating certain things, saying certain words, carrying out certain rituals, adopting certain postures, seen at certain places. It seems as if when we are doing these things, there is so much of God inside. But the scary truth may be that the poem is right. There is no God in our religiosity. There is only us. And just in case that we think that this applies to only other religions and not us as Christians, I plead with us, brothers and sisters, to think again. We too can be prone to this. 
We can be prone to a religiosity that is imbued with a strong Christian flavor, a religiosity concerning Christian things. We may be attending church services and Bible studies, busying ourselves in different ministries, saying the right creeds and prayers, appearing in the right camps and conventions, having the right experiences. But in the midst of doing all this, our focus could be wrong. And like other forms of religiosity, we could be falling into the same danger, doing these things to feel religious, to feel good, to feel connected to God, to feel that we are in His favour, His good books. And if that is so, then we too can be so caught up in our Christian religiosity that we miss out on the Saviour. Sure, we won't deny the Saviour. The name of the Lord Jesus will still be on our lips. We will still give Him the due recognition. But deep in our hearts and our thoughts, we feel we don't really need a saviour because we think our religiosity is enough. So what can save us from the dangers of religiosity? What can save us from the blindness that comes from it? The word today is that only Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, can. Through Jesus coming into a head-on collision with the popular religiosity of his day, and through Jesus having to pay the price for that by having to die, Jesus shows us this is how he will save us from the danger and blindness of religiosity. See, our religiosity leads us to focus on our self-efforts. But God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, leads us to focus on his effort. That as Jesus the Christ dies on the cross, that's God's way of saving us. That's his way of forgiving us of our sin. And when you and I repent and trust fully in what Jesus has accomplished through his death on the cross and his resurrection to new life, what's happening there? That's God opening our eyes and saving us from the blindness and dangers of religiosity. That's God turning our focus away from religiosity to the Saviour. That's God turning our eyes, turn your eyes to look upon Jesus. So would you do that even as we hear his word this morning? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed your word comes to us this morning, reminding us of the dangers of our self-made religiosity. And it's possible, oh Lord, we recognize that it's possible that we could even build up a Christian religiosity around our lives. And the danger of it, as we have seen, oh Lord, is that it really blinds us to the need for a saviour. So we pray, oh Lord, that even as your word has been spoken, we pray that your spirit may take your word and cause us to turn our eyes away from our self-established religiosity and to turn our eyes to the Lord Jesus, remembering his words that he said to us, that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Lord, we recognize that we are bankrupt. We realize that we are spiritually poor. We re realize that we are sick. We realize that we need healing, that we need cleansing, that we need washing. And to you, Lord Jesus, 
we come. For you and you alone have brought in God's age of salvation. You and you alone are the bridegroom. You and you alone are Lord of the Sabbath, the one who grants us the Sabbath rest. We thank you for your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.